Hi, and welcome to Fun With Science. I'm Steve, and this is Carrie. Today, what we're gonna do is we're going to make a carbon snake. I hate snakes. How that works is we're gonna use this sulfuric acid. Don't do this at home, by the way. And uh, we're gonna pour it into this sugar and then stir it around, and then we're gonna see what happens. And hopefully, it's cool. Bubbling. Check that out. Still going. <laughs> it stinks. <laughs> I have no words for that. Uh, that's actually what we do around the week here. <laughs> Welcome, campuses, and those watching online. Anyone here got a Facebook or a Twitter account out there? Yeah, a bunch of you do. There are some verses in the Bible that are just custom-made for quoting, and maybe you've come across them from time to time. For instance, a verse like Romans 8, 28 that says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Or maybe you've come across this one, Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. If you've seen those, you're not alone. They are two of the three most quoted verses online or in social media, the first being John 3.16. But there's some verses that we don't see quoted as much. I, I haven't come across these quite so often. A, a verse like Deuteronomy 14.21, it says, do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to another foreigner. <laughs> Don't see that one as much. And translation, you may not eat roadkill, but feel free to give it to your friends. <laughs> you might want to ask some questions next time you come over to my house to eat. Or here's another one I don't see quite as often, Proverbs 21:19. It is better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. <laughs> Men, quote that one online, and a desert might just be the safest place for you. <laughs> Today we come across another verse, though, that I have heard, had heard quoted on more than one occasion Yet when this one is quoted, can cause a lot of damage, unfortunately, can, can cause a lot of bad things in marriages and in relationships. And the verse we've arrived at in Colossians chapter 3 is in verse 18. It says this, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And let's face it, submitting isn't naturally a word that we gravitate towards. It doesn't necessarily bring warm, happy feelings to us. Submitting isn't a word that we're naturally wired to do. And in general, our society and our culture would have us to believe that submitting to anyone or anything is a sign of weakness, particularly if you are a woman, because our society stresses that women stand strong and be independent thinkers and people. And yet here we have Paul saying, wives, submit to your husbands as is in fitting to the Lord. What in the world are we supposed to do with this? A quick reading of Colossians and a quick reading of Ephesians 
will show you that these two books have a great deal in common, not only in message, but in structure. In fact, scholars widely believe that they were written at the same time. They were both delivered to the church by the same messenger, Tychicus. There's a section inside Colossians that we have arrived at called Household Codes, and if you go to Ephesians, there's a section there called Household Codes as well. I believe that the section in Ephesians does a little better job of breaking it out. It's a little more information. So with your permission, I would like us to leave Colossians today, and I want us to look at this section in the book of Ephesians, which is in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We are going to continue showing it on the screen. It is inside your worship guide as well. And when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul begins his thought here with an additional statement. He says this, Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another, why? Out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is going to be the overarching lens from which we are going to read this entire passage, this idea that we are to submit to one another. And what he's saying here is Everyone, whether you are a husband, whether you're a wife, whether you are a woman, whether you are a man, whether you are a child, whether you are a master, or whether you are a servant, no matter who you are or what your role is, everyone is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But what does this idea of submit mean? We need a good working definition if we're going to move forward on that. And so I want to submit to you this. Submit means making someone else's desires, wishes, and dreams a priority over yours. It means making someone else's desires, wishes, and dreams a priority over yours. And this is very hard to do in our marriages because we're not naturally wired this way. We're not naturally wired to put someone else's wishes, desires, and dreams ahead of ours. At the center of my world is me. I know what me needs. I know what me wants. I know about me. We're not naturally wired to submit. Essentially what we're saying is it's very easy for me to be me, and it's very easy for you to be you. In fact, I want you to say that with me real quick, all right? Because this is important. Say this with me. It's very easy for me to be me. It's very easy for you to be you. And I know it sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, but actually this is a profound statement. Because this is where the problem lies sometimes. It's very easy for me to be me. I know what me wants, and I'm centered on me. And we're not naturally wired to think of others or to put their needs, wants, and desires above our own. I'm wired for me, but what happens in marriage sometimes is two me's collide, and they don't always create an us. And when that happens, we have all sorts of problems. Because we come into the marriage knowing what me wants. And the reality is, is we come into our marriage with all sorts of expectations. I mean, it, it doesn't start there. I mean, when you're, when you're dating and you're just getting to know somebody, you're, you're dreaming and you're exploring, you have all these ideas about what it means uh, to have the, the perfect house and the car you're going to drive and what your marriage is going to look like and your career. You even have these ideas about what your romance and sex life will look like. But something happens over time. 
See, what happens over time, and I'm not really sure when, whether it's uh, during the planning of the wedding or, or maybe when we march down the aisle or in the honeymoon or sometime in the next year, not sure when, but one of the things that happens is those desires and those wishes and those dreams that we used to love to explore when we were dating suddenly become expectations and obligations in the marriage. And a message creeps into our marriage that says something like this, when I said I do, I kind of sort of expected you would. <laughs> and what happens when, that, when we do that is that the dynamic of the marriage completely changes at that point because now you have entered a debt debtor relationship my dreams turned into expectations which have now turned into obligations and you owe me you owe me and when things don't turn out as they planned and most of us in this room know things don't always turn out as they plan we feel like we have been robbed because we were owed. But when that happens, romance and relationship and connectivity is completely dependent on ensuring you get what you need or expected to get. It's the payoff for fulfilling your end of the bargain. And essentially what happens at this point in your marriage is it becomes a contract. Your marriage is now a contract where obligations and expectations are to be met. But this is not a biblical definition or understanding of what marriage is. The Bible would have us to understand that marriage is a covenant and there is a difference between the two. A contract defines your rights. A contract defines your rights. A contract says, you owe me. Those dreams and those expectations, they are now obligations. And it, you are expected to fulfill them. There was a horrible example of that in the news this week. I don't know if you saw it or not. A woman left, a wife left for the airport to go on a business trip, and on her way, she receives an email from her husband. Inside that email is an Excel spreadsheet of which he has outlined all his attempts to have sex for the last seven weeks. One column has the date. The next column has her excuse. In general, this is a bad idea. And her gift to him was to post it online for the entire world to see. You see what happens when you have a marriage that's based on obligation and expectation? It moves to a debt-debtor relationship. You owe me. But the problem is, when you move to a debt-debtor relationship or a contract in your marriage, intimacy and trust go out the window. You cannot have intimacy and trust in a contractual relationship. I do not have intimacy and trust with my car finance company. It just doesn't happen. A covenant's different from a contract. Whereas a contract defines your rights, a covenant merges your hearts. A covenant is a promise before God of unconditional love. And the word covenant comes from an ancient Hebrew word which meant to cut. And essentially what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal and they would cut it in half and place it on the ground. I wanted to demonstrate that for you, but they thought you would have a real problem with that. So I'm going to need your imaginations 
They would place these two pieces of the animal on the ground, and the people in the agreement would walk between them in a figure eight, which is where we get our symbol for infinity, because a contract is supposed to last forever. In a covenant, you're inviting God into the center of your marriage. The world requires contracts, but listen up. God's people are promise keepers. Amen? I love this verse in Ecclesiastes 4.12. It says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I have two young daughters, and they love to braid their hair. I'm awful at it, but they love to do it. But if you've ever tried to braid hair, you know you can't just braid hair with two strands, can you? It doesn't work. It doesn't hold well. It's only when you bring that third strand into the braid that you get a tight fit because it's the third strand that holds the two together. It is the strongest and the tightest. And this is a picture of what happens when we, in covenant with God, invite him into our marriages. He becomes that third strand that holds the other two together. But I have a question for you. I don't know where you come from. Maybe you've been married 40, 50 years. Maybe this is new. You've just got married in the last year or so or somewhere in between. Maybe you're in a relationship with someone considering marriage or you're single and someday hoping to be married. We all come at this from many different places. But what I want to ask is this. Do you view marriage as a contract or as a covenant? Is it based on expectations and obligations or unconditional love? And this is important as we're going to try to understand what Paul's calling us to when he says to submit. Because what we have to ask ourselves if we're to understand this word submit is simply this. Do we submit out of obligation or are we submitting out of love? And there's a big, big difference. Let's continue on with reading in Ephesians in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands when they behave. Right? You know what it says there? Wives, submit to your husbands because they deserve it. Right? No. What does it say there? Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he, Jesus, is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. This set of verses is one of the most abused and hotly debated set of verses in the entire New Testament. And its misusage has caused more damage sometimes than it has good. And let's face it, the big argument here, there's lots of things built into them, but the big one here is, what did Paul mean when he said the husband is the head of the wife? What is he saying when he said that? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to recognize that Paul is being very, very careful with his words here, just as I'm going to be. He's being very careful for his words here, and he's using a very specific word. There were perfectly fine and reasonable words in the Greek to define master or ruler or dark overlord. 
But he did not use any of those words in this passage. He used the word head. And to understand what the word head meant in the ancient Greek, it simply meant to place under. But not in the sense of rulership, to place under in the sense of you have a responsibility for. It is important to note this. The head in the ancient Greek was a leadership term. And what Paul is saying here is he is saying to the husbands, you have been called to a leadership role in your home. The husband is called to a leadership role. And it's important that you understand that. And here's what I know about leadership. Leadership is about influencing. Leadership is about equipping. Leadership is about resourcing. Leadership is about putting people above yourself and helping them understand everything they were created to be, to equip and to resource them to accomplish what they were created to do. And because biblical leadership starts by putting other people's above our own, the picture we get consistently throughout the Bible is one of a servant. And an underlying truth of the Bible is simply this, good leaders must first become good servants. Good leaders must first become good servants. Biblical leadership looks a lot more like Jesus washing the feet of the disciples than it does him pointing his finger and barking orders. We must first become servants. And it's important here, again, Paul choosing his words very carefully when he says that we are the head of the of the wife as Christ is head of the church, the thought stops there though. And the important thing to know is Jesus is more than simply just the head. We are not given the other parts of it. Jesus is also our savior and Jesus is also our Lord and our king. But it's an important differentiation here. While we may share headship, at no point in the Bible are we called to be our wife's savior and our wife's king. Your wife, men, already has a Savior and King, and that is Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is not a call for us to rule and dominate over our wives. It is a call to biblical leadership in the home, which is given in stewardship for one day we will give an account. But wives, here's my ask. We say, practically speaking, what are you saying here, Jason? Jason? How do I apply this to life? And it's simply this. If an important decision has come up in your home and you and your husband can't agree upon it, you've lovingly talked it over, you've gently weighed the options, you've obediently and humbly prayed over it, you have maybe even sought godly counsel on this issue. But a time has come when a decision must be made. I'm asking you this, ladies. You yield at that time to your husband's leadership role in the home. And you allow him to make the call. Submit to your husband the same way you would submit to Christ. And men... This is not a call for you to abuse your leadership role. We have all been around people who have abused their leadership before, and we don't like it. This is not, I'm the husband, we're going to Red Lobster, woman. (laughs) Right? 
I don't want any emails this week telling you, my husband said that you said I'm supposed to do everything he says. You will have missed the point. Leadership is about responsibility and accountability. As I said before, you will stand, men, before Almighty God to give an account in stewardship for what was given to you, including these decisions. And on the rare occasions, men, rare occasions, that you need to exercise your leadership role, it should be done in utter reverence and fear before your Creator God. Amen? Men, amen? We are to exercise that leadership role with absolute respect and humility before our God. Because here's why. Here's what God is calling us to, men. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as you love your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. Men, how do you speak to your wife? How do you speak to your wife, both publicly and privately? You know what I found out? How a man speaks to his wife says a whole lot about who he is. It's one of the things I tell my son as well. How, do you, how you speak to your mother today is how you will speak to your wife later. Man, how are you speaking to your wife? Are you speaking to her in love? With care, with gentleness, with kindness, with mercy, with grace? Are you giving her the affection she so desperately wants and so desperately needs? Love your wives. The Greeks had four words for the one word we have, love. There was storge, which is natural affection. There was philia, which means brotherly love. We named Philadelphia from that word. And then there's eros, where we get the word erotic. And I don't think I have to explain that one to you. He didn't use any of those three words. He used the fourth one, which is agape, agape, love. It essentially means the love of God. It is an unconditional love, a no-holds-barred love. We are called to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. And essentially what that means is this. A husband's love for his wife looks a lot more like a cross than it does a crown. A husband's love for his wife looks a lot more like a cross than it does a crown. 
That is why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The same love that Jesus Christ showed us, this undeserving love, this undeserving grace. He died on our behalf to pay a price that we were supposed to pay. This love that he showed us that said, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you think you've done, I came in love to die for you no matter what. That same love and nothing less, men, you are being called to love your wives in the same way. So while we'd love to read these verses and say, wives, submit to men, guess what? You get the harder end of the deal. In fact, really, it's all of us because we're all called to love in the same way. Paul continues in verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2 here and saying this is a profound mystery. In Genesis 2, we see a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Genesis 2, interestingly enough, is also where we see the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve, and it defines their relationship there in the garden before the fall. Essentially, what he's saying is our marriages should be returning to the garden. Well, what does that mean, Jason? What does it mean? Our marriages should be returning to the garden. Well, here, here's what I mean. Many of you may know the story. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They have this harmonious relationship. But they decide to eat the fruit that they were instructed not to eat. And then God begins to explain to them what the results of that action will be. And one of them, in Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I have heard men quote this verse to me on many numerous occasions saying, this is my role, I'm supposed to rule over my wife. But I take issue with that and here's why. We are the redeemed people of God and there's a reason why Jesus was called the new Adam in the New Testament. There is a reason we are to die to our old life and we have been resurrected to a new life. There is a reason we are forgiven. There's a reason God has taken the broken pieces of our life and restoring us back to who we are and that reason is simply this. We are not people of the curse. We are people of the garden. And we are not to be living in the curse. The Bible says we have been set free from the curse so we don't have to live this way. That was not God's intention for relationships that the man rule over the wife. That was a result of the fall. And you are not, as a Christian, supposed to be living your life in the curse. You are supposed to be living in the garden. Is your marriage moving towards the garden or towards the curse? Ask yourselves that. We are people of the garden, being put back together in our original condition. And in the garden, it said the two became one, equal status with unique roles and responsibilities, but equal before the eyes of God. Which gets us to our so what moment today. I always love that verse at weddings. The two become one. You, you hear that and it's very poetic and you think, oh, that's very nice. But only recently did I realize that built into that truth was also an enormous warning. 
What happens when two different people with two different sets of expectations come in to a marriage? And I was reminded of an algebraic equation that I, I was given back in junior high. It went something like this. Train A leaves the train station traveling 35 miles per hour this direction. Train B leaves the train station going 55 miles per hour this direction. At what point do they meet up? And the answer is, I'm not real sure, but we got a problem when they do. What happens when two people enter into a marriage with completely different sets of expectations and obligations and are completely unwilling to submit to each other? The answer is a train wreck. I'm not really sure where and I'm not sure when, but they're going to collide. Those two me's ain't going to make an us. So how can we start submitting to each other? Practically speaking, what can we do today? Paul gives us a great instruction on that in Ephesians 5.33. He ends this section with this. However, each one of you, he's talking to husbands here, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Men, your greatest act of submission to your wife today is to love her unconditionally, no matter what. To give her the love and affection she needs, this is the fuel that drives her. And wives, you can submit to your husbands today by giving him the respect he needs because this is the fuel that drives him. In the book, Love and Respect by Emerson Egrich, he warns husbands and wives of a dangerous cycle that they can get in. And that cycle looks a little bit like this. The husband doesn't think he's getting the respect he deserves, so he begins to withdraw love from the wife. And the wife then doesn't feel that she's getting the love she deserves, so she begins to withdraw respect from the husband. And this just goes round and round. It's just this vicious cycle that keeps going until it destroys the marriage. I want to humbly submit to you today that submitting means you refuse to allow that vicious cycle to go on in your marriage. Submitting today means you taking a stand and saying, I am going to draw a line in the sand. I choose today to unconditionally love my wife no matter what. Even if I don't feel I'm getting the respect I deserve, I'm going to rise up. I'm going to say enough. I'm going to say it ends here, and I'm going to make a difference in this marriage. It means wives standing up and saying, I'm going to respect my husband no matter what. Even if I don't feel I'm getting the unconditional love and adoration that I want, I refuse refuse today to quit on this marriage. I refuse today to stop fighting because God never, ever, ever stopped fighting for me. Amen? Ever. And it's drawing that line in the sand and say, I today choose to be the adult in this relationship and stop this cycle from happening. And what we find out is when one of the spouses does that and endures the other one often comes around. But it starts with you. You want to thank God for everything he's done for you? You want to show gratitude to Jesus for dying on a cross for your sins? You want to praise him 
for his grace, his mercy, his kindness that he's shown you. What Paul is saying is one of the best ways that you can show God gratitude and thanks is by submitting in your marriage. You want to start showing God thank you? Show him in your marriage as you submit in reverence to Christ. And so men, I'm calling you to a leadership moment. Listen up. Sometime in the next day or so, I would like you, whether it's on the ride home, if it's just the two of you, or in a quiet room sometime, I want you to sit down with your wife, and I want you to ask this simple question, am I a loving husband? Am I a loving husband? And wives, I want you to ask your husband this. Do you feel I respect you? Do, I feel, do you feel I respect you? And all I ask is three things from you, if I may. Number one, be honest with each other. Be honest. Number two, be gentle in this discussion. Number three, don't be defensive. Don't argue. I've put these inside your worship guide to encourage you to do this because I believe it's important. And listen, if the answer is not what you expected or thought you would hear, may I suggest to you three words that can have a powerful impact in your marriage. And it's simply this, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And so I'll start, okay? She's watching online. Christy, my wife, I have not always been as loving as I can be. I have raised my voice before. I'm not always as gentle as I can be. I don't always give you the love you deserve. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And now's your turn. I want you to do this this week. Please, I want you to take this seriously. Because this church needs godly marriages and healthy marriages if we are going to be the sent people of God in our communities and throughout the world. The next generation needs to see healthy, godly marriages if we're going to rise up a generation that's going to charge the hill and make a difference for Jesus Christ. We need to see healthy relationships and marriages if we're going to send the message to the world there is hope and healing through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we're just hypocrites. It starts in the home. It starts by you saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the greatest way to thank him for all that he's done is to submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. So where do you need to begin? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Nobody looking around. I want to ask a question. Same question we've asked in other services. Who up there would say, Jason, I need you to pray for our marriage? I need you to pray for my marriage. Yep, hands going up all over. Yep. Who honestly say, yes, I need prayer for our marriage? Amen. Thank you. Hands up all over. Dear Lord, we come to you today in reverence. Knowing that as we sung about earlier, the same power that conquered the grave lives inside of us and it's that power that we're going to need to put the pieces back together too in our marriages and in our relationships. That built into that same message that says nothing is impossible for God. There's nothing too big, nothing too small. That our God is still at work changing lives and repairing marriages. So today, Lord, may we humbly submit to one another. Talk these things through. And seek your will. So that we may be a church that makes a difference in the world and a difference in the next generation. It's in your name. Amen.